On this vote, the yeas are 52, the nays are 48. The nomination of Amy Coney Barrett of Indiana to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is confirmed. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. Judge Amy Coney Barrett. If Joe Biden wins, Democrats can sack the courts. Your lying dog-faced pony shoulder. Maybe that's a question you should ask China. Anyway, my time's up. I'm not thinking, Mr. That's President. okay. I know you're not thinking. You never do. It's a whole hoax. And you know who's playing into the hoax? People like you and the fake news media. We are born free and we will stay free. A massive show we've got here for you today. Unbelievable. Amy Coney Barrett is a Supreme Court justice. We are Finally. one week from Election Day. And folks, we have Senator Tom Cotton getting ruthless today. That's, that's a hell of a lineup we got. Um, what a night to start with. You know, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. You know, I, I know mean, Merrick, wow. is, Merrick is looking down upon us right now, smiling and overjoyed that Amy Coney Barrett has been confirmed. What Small, a night. Can we talk just a minute about the prophecy that you foretold in October of 2018 when you told all of the minions that this would happen? I remember I told them, I said, you know, October of 2020, Cocaine Mitch will place RBG with Amy Coney Barrett and there's not a goddamn thing the libs can do about it. And <laughs> what happened? Cocaine Mitch delivered yet well, again. Well, Cocaine Mitch does deliver yet again, and this one is a big one. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, we all watched the hearings. We all watched her performance. We know what kind of a justice she's going to be. It is going to be mm-hmm. a massive difference on the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, six three, but but I don't know about that. It's- Finally, conservatives have a five four majority. <laughs> it's a good day. It's a great day. And, you know, now we can proceed to rig the election and take everybody's health care away freely in a maternalistic Finally. dignity. No more meddling from John Roberts. It's time to take <laughs> health care away from people. That's what we've been after this whole time. You know? in, in, in total seriousness, it is a generational accomplishment that we witnessed last night. There is huge, huge. nobody who could have predicted uh, the shift. If you look at, you know, basically where we were at the end of the Obama term with Merrick Garland being nominated, we were on the Peace precipice. Be upon him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be upon him. We were on the precipice of a five-four liberal majority on that court. Yeah. And four years later, we are looking at, you know, six-three or you know, with Roberts, it's you know, it could be five-four. <laughs> but anyway, it is a, a decisive shift in our direction. And you know what a triumph, what accomplishment by President Trump. And by cocaine, Mitch. I mean, this is, you know, this is the last defense against the lunacy of the left. It's America's insurance policy for the Biden rioters, and who knows what happens. You know, if if Biden finds a way to rig the election and win this thing, and he tries to pass some kind of crazy Green New Deal, ban all guns. You know, God bless cocaine, Mitch. He's 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 held the line for us right there. He he really has, and I think all Republican senators deserve an awful lot of credit for staying in this thing. You know, I mean, look, the outside story that nobody really knows is this nomination came up at the end of September. And when it did, there was an awful lot of travel and COVID uh, 
interplay. Yeah. We know about the super yeah. spreader event in the South Lawn, <laughs> you know, where, where three Republican senators ended up getting COVID. So, I mean, the challenge of trying to keep not only everybody on board in terms of where the votes are, because they had no margin to spare. Remember, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins dealt themselves out before the proceedings began on the motion to proceed to this nomination. So they were literally at the number. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you lose anyone, I mean, if somebody gets sick, if somebody does uh, you know, anything to themselves, yeah. if they get lost on the way to the Senate, I mean, you don't get a Supreme Court nominee. And they had to hold that together for six weeks. And another, it's a huge amount of credit to the senators who are in cycle. You know, you've got Corey in Colorado who held the line. You know, totally. that's, that's courage under fire right there. Did, totally. not, did not back down to the crazy left. That guy deserves a ton of credit. He came out right away. You know, he's made himself very clear on where he stands with these issues. He stands with all of us. And, uh, and I, I agree. Him, Martha McSally, Tom Tillis, yep. Joni Ernst, you know, all of those folks. David Perdue, all of them just rock solid. Yeah. So huge shout out, Senator Cory Gardner. Let's get him right back in the Senate. We need him. Um, Absolutely. There's there, one thing that I noticed um, – and this is just, it's becoming unbelievable. I, I can't tell you how much it pisses me off. Last night during this momentous occasion in the South Lawn where the president and Justice Thomas is swearing in Amy Coney Barrett, like, you know, a, a significant news event. CNN and MSNBC did not take it. It's insane. It's insane. It, uh, that's, it. that's what we've been saying is, you know, the mainstream fake news media will not give you the information you need, you have to subscribe to Ruthless. You have to get all your friends to subscribe to Ruthless because you will actually get the news here. You'll get the information here. You'll get the analysis here. And it's even more than that. Like the reckoning is coming. The reckoning is coming. It, this will not be settled on election day. This revolution is just being, what Trump has showed us in these four years is that it doesn't matter if you're Donald Trump or you're Mitt Romney or you're, you know, some other milk toast Republican, they're going to say the same damn thing about you. Yeah, every, you know, every Republican is always Hitler. It's the worst thing possible, and the 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 media is totally in the bag for the Dems. They're doing everything they can to elect Biden. They are they are involved in straight up election interference right now. Oh, I, we want to get to that because we've, I know you've got some special thoughts on what's oh, yeah. going on with that. I, I got a lot of thoughts on that. Before we get to that, I've got two quotes that I want to pull and, and, and discuss. The first is what McConnell says last night in his closing speech after hearing Democrats talk about how this was an illegitimate process and illegitimate justice. He says, quote, legitimacy does not flow from their feelings, unquote. What a mic drop. take that cocaine mitch does not give an f about your feelings does not care cry more it's just so good and then and then also in a quote of of terrible lack of self-awareness senator schumer says uh that as a result of amy coney barrett quote generations of unborn will suffer unquote yeah i mean well the the consequences they'll get to be born so congratulations yeah. to them. Thank you, ACB. We reached for comment. The unborn disagreed. With <laughs> I mean, it's, it was, it's, it's a huge celebration. It's a huge accomplishment. We're going from the John Roberts court to the Clarence Thomas court. You know, we, we are finally in a place where we're going to be safe from activist judges, you know, legislating from the bench. God bless Trump. God bless Cocaine Mitch for pulling this off. 
totally. And the, and the politics of this, look, if the politics of recent history or politics for the next week, Republicans, I think, probably have a little wind at their back. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, finally, I think there's going to be some Dems who are going to end up paying the price um, for voting no. Like, you've got Doug Jones in Alabama, you know, last time that race had a minor issue in it. Now, voting against uh, ACB is a major issue in the race. (laughs) Got to worry about that. The sly Roy Moore (laughs) reference. And, you know, last thing, I got to give a lot more credit for Cocaine Mitch, because right after the confirmation, he moves to confirm more judges. Just like... (laughs) It doesn't stop. The night's not over for you, Dems. You're going to sit here and you're going to watch. We're lining up more judges. It you does better not pack stop. a lunch. Okay, Mitch has got another, <laughs> another haul for you. <laughs> One night. Um, now let's, uh, let, let's uh, transition to the election in general. Josh, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious to me, at least, that Trump's going to win 538 electoral votes. But, you know, just in case some folks still believe what CNN's polls are saying, uh, Josh, why don't you tell us what the most plausible path forward is for President Trump? Yeah, look, I mean, first of all, if President Trump wins, the polling industry is going to be broken forever, right? Totally. I mean, we're we're, we're going to be done with that, and they're going to have to find new ways to sample public opinion. And I, I think that's possible. I mean, look, the president has had a great 10-day run, not a good one, a great one, probably yeah. the best one that he's had, you know, since impeachment, and that was shoved back down the throat of Nancy Pelosi. I mean, this is this has been a really, really solid bunch of news days for him just grand slam after grand slam you know that debate oh. performance um the polls are just i mean even the cnn polls are starting to look really really good yeah i mean so so the bottom line is his pathway requires florida and it requires north carolina again but both are very plausible even in in you know the polling averages which are are not incredibly favorable He's right there in both of those states. And I think we saw some early vote numbers come back in Florida where they're basically even Republicans and Democrats. And, I, you know, Democrats needed a pretty significant advantage in early voting in order to be comfortable in Florida. So, I, you know, I'm, I feel pretty good about the president's ability to carry there. But after you get to those two states, you got to have some different combination of, of um, other Midwestern states. And assuming you carry everything that you previously carried out West, which is like Arizona is the big one. If he wins Pennsylvania, this sucker's over. Yeah. That's the one right? I'm watching. It, it's over. And you saw that. I mean, that's why he was there for three stops yesterday. That's yeah. why he's just nonstop. I mean, that yeah. guy he's like the energizer bunny. It's like campaign stop, campaign stop, campaign stop, just all over Pennsylvania. Full energy. And then takes it back to the South long for Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, it's incredible. He's got just another job. day. Just another day. The Regeneron is uh, added a little, uh, little extra. The Regeneron lives loudly within him. <laughs> so, but you know, look, it, it doesn't have to be just Pennsylvania. I think that's the easiest pathway. But he could. I mean, Michigan get, gets you there too, assuming you're holding everything and, and including Iowa. Um, if you don't have Michigan or Pennsylvania, it gets trickier. Right. You've got to have combinations of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, got to hold on to Arizona. You can still get there. You got to pick off a, 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 a one of those congressional seats in uh, Maine and Nebraska. You got to make sure you, you lock that one down. So there, there are a number of ways for the president to get home here. But the most important and easiest one is through Michigan or Pennsylvania. And in Nevada, it's, is Nevada a must win there? Yeah, you know, Nevada is actually really interesting because, I mean, look, the, the Democrats have figured out how to try to rig everything when it 
pertains to the election in Nevada. And it's just been insane what they've done with mail out ballots and everything else. But, but there's also a little change to the electorate. Obviously the service industry has changed quite a bit during COVID and people have sort of scattered a little bit. So there's a lot of question about what the, the, actual makeup of the electorate looks like and, and also you know when we saw during uh, the primaries you know ralston soleimani no longer has that iron grip to activate culinary that he once did <laughs> that could be a game changer you know ralston soleimani doesn't activate culinary who knows what happens there who knows what happens if the culinary is not there so <laughs> so yeah so you look at at some of this um stuff and you can see multiple pathways to victory the, the one really interesting part that i've found completely at odds with what we hear from the mainstream media is this coming into this, the idea that we're going to have this sort of record uh, number of ballots cast by mail. Right. I Mm -hmm. mean, just everybody was talking about how Republicans are going to be overwhelmed with Democrats mail-in voting far before election day. And no question there's been a lot of mail-in by, by votes. And there is certainly a democratic advantage, but yesterday, here's yesterday's totals as as, uh, given to us by the Associated Press. 58.6 million ballots were cast so far, early vote and vote by mail. Okay, so how does that compare to 2016? In 2016, we had 58 million votes cast. Interesting. What? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought the pandemic changed everything, Smug. You know, here's my thing is, you know, whoever's out there doing the voter suppression, they're doing an awful job. You know, we hear there's a lot of voter suppression going on. I don't see it, but hey, who knows? I did. I did. They were wrapping themselves into pretzels to try to figure out how to explain that. But, but it is really interesting to note that although there will be more ballots cast early and by mail, as of right now, it's exactly the same as it was in 2016. And you know the emphasis the Democrats have put on voting by mail and the mainstream media has told us we have to vote by mail. And remember the September blow up with every Democrat in Congress trying to convince us that Mike Duncan was somehow rigging this election with mailboxes? That was completely insane. We had a congressman chain himself to a USPS <laughs> postal box. That's complete madness. Like, where do they come up with this Looney Tune stuff? I mean, we have dealt with so much madness over the last few years. It is, I don't even know where to begin, but that one was clearly, clearly ridiculous. And I, I think, look, Bottom line is the president can win this race. He's got multiple paths to victory. And I, I think he's not been overwhelmed at all by early voting. We're, you know, we're just going to see how this goes. I know we want to do a full recap of the Senate on Thursday. Yeah, definitely going to have to go over that map too. Yeah. So, so we'll leave that, we'll leave that there. And I know the last part of this that we referenced at the beginning that you want to get into smug. Absolutely. We've got a couple of theories of the case here on the closing arguments and what's happening to our news media. Huge. So everyone knows that the media is completely crooked. They're doing the bidding of the Biden campaign and they're, you know, they're, they're completely hiding the truth from the public, especially on this Hunter Biden thing. And two people specifically, I need to call out, and that's John Brennan and uh, Clapper, who have been giving cover to the left-wing media to sweep everything and having to do with Hunter under the rug. You know, they'll, they'll, they're giving these quotes out, and they're very careful how they say it. They say, "Oh, you know, this laptop has the hallmarks quote totally. hallmarks of Russian disinformation." You know, it's like saying, you know, many people are saying or sources say, no, you know. <laughs> there's no basis in fact this is you know they're just completely pulling this out of the air 
it's hallmarks of Russian disinformation. So what happens is now you have every media organization running out there and saying, oh, it, it's Russian disinformation, total Russian disinformation. You know, Incredible, incredible. And, and, and we're talking about the disinformation smoke. Are you talking about the sex tape? Wow. Um, I don't, can we even, I don't, we're going to move on. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I feel like we got to just at least acknowledge there was feet involved. Oh my God. No, there goes our Apple iTunes rating right there. Uh, God, <laughs> I mean, here's the thing with with Brennan and Clappers. They have no choice. You know, Trump wins, they're in jail. Biden wins, they're in the cabinet. So, <laughs> what do you think they're gonna do? You know, these crooks. So, I mean, look, I, the other piece of this, and I think you correctly hit this, that they are actually the cover for hiding all of this information yep. that has come out. But, but I look at this also from the other side, which is if you're Joe Biden and you believe that it is Russian disinformation that has surfaced that is unfairly linking your son to not only very crooked business deals in China and in Russia, but also a sex tape where he's smoking crack. Yes. Like, I mean, wouldn't that, you want to get to the bottom of that? I mean, that's the thing is, so if Joe Biden and the Dems are so concerned this is Russian disinformation, why doesn't Biden promise to appoint a special counsel to investigate all of this if he's elected? You know, you get, you get a special counsel, they're removed from the political process. And, you know, as, just like you're saying, as the media told us for three years, this material, that tape, this could be compromised, you know, for the president. Oh, my God, you know. I mean, that's what they, if it is compromised. Right? Wouldn't totally. you want to get to the bottom of that? Totally. You know, I mean, MSNBC is still looking for a smoking gun in Prague while Hunter Biden is smoking crack in Kazakhstan. Like, <laughs> let's be serious. This is ridiculous. Ridiculous. I've got an idea, Smug. I think Merrick Garland should lead the investigation. Totally. Peace be upon him. Appoint I- Merrick from beyond. <laughs> he can watch, watch over us as the special counsel. I, I, I fully support this. I feel like that that is the way to go. <laughs> uh, folks, look, we, this, is, this has been incredibly fun, but we've got a really important interview. And huge. We, we want to get straight to it. This, is, this guy has been a, a, a big, big part of our success over the last few years from the conservative side. And I can't wait to interview Senator Tom Cotton. And, you know, also you got to mention he's the new owner of the New York Times. So you got, you know, be sure to congratulate him on that. Um, yeah, I will. I will. Without further ado, let's get right into that interview. Well, we are super excited here today because we've got our first guest on the Ruthless Podcast, none other than the world-renowned senator from Arkansas, Mr. Tom Cotton. How are Thanks, you, Josh. Thanks, Josh. It's good to be on with you. Oh, my gosh. What We're in the biggest of times. We're one week separated here from the election. Your own name on the ballot down in Arkansas. Uh, we also have what was an incredibly momentous occasion in the United States Senate yesterday with the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. What are your thoughts on that, Senator Cotton? Well, I think it was a great day uh, for the country and for the Constitution. Uh, I mean, I think most Americans loved what they saw about Judge Barrett at her confirmation hearing. And that's one reason why you saw a clear majority of Americans supported her confirmation. So I commend the president um, for nominating her and uh, Mitch McConnell uh, for helping shepherd her through the Senate and holding our majority together. Uh, And then most importantly, I commend Judge Barrett, now Justice Barrett, 
her, um, you know, handle, handling herself masterfully in front of the Judiciary Committee and the life she's lived and the long and distinguished career that she's no doubt going to have on the Supreme Court. Were you surprised at all that Senate Democrats were, were able to sort of stay away from the level of prosecution against her religious views that they were so insistent on in her appellate court hearings? They, they basically tried to make this a a referendum on Obamacare rather than discuss what they really wanted to discuss, it appeared, which was her, her Catholic faith. Yeah, you know, they, the Democrats on the committee hinted around at criticisms of her, her faith, uh, and proxies on the left did not hint around at it. They just openly attacked her. It kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, back in the fall of 2007 when uh, David Petraeus came to testify and the Democrats were expressing skepticism of the success of the surge in Iraq and moveon.org just went full Leroy Jenkins <laughs> and went, called him General Betrayus in a full page ad in the Washington Post. So I do think there was some coordination on the left. The Senate Democrats on the committee would not openly attack her faith the way they did last time while their proxies and surrogates on the left would. But obviously uh, she came off in an incredibly appealing and dignified, graceful way uh, in addition to the brilliance and the deep erudition she showed about the law in that committee hearing. So it's no surprise to me, again, that the polls showed that the American people wanted her confirmed. And the Democrats knew they were playing a pretty weak hand, um, both with public opinion and also on how solidly unified the Republicans were, um, you know, within just a few days of Judge Ginsburg's passing. But that, you know, one of the things I think that is underrated about this process is basically you had six weeks to try to keep everybody healthy and everybody in attendance, uh, which is, you know, everybody kind of looked past that, but that's no small feat when you're at the end of an election, everybody's traveling, trying to do what they can do on the ground and then coming back and, and talk a little bit about how difficult it was to make sure that you had 51 votes at the end of the day. Yeah, well, you know, there was that time, uh, maybe three weeks ago, uh, after, uh, several senators had contracted the coronavirus or been exposed to someone who had. Unfortunately, those were all pretty mild cases and then were hospitalized and everyone was back on their feet within the requisite time period. Um, but yeah, I mean, we certainly all uh, you know, had to do our part to stay together, both politically and medically. Um, I feel like I probably travel more these days than almost any person in America as I'm going around the country campaigning for my fellow senators and going back and forth between Arkansas and Washington. But, you know, it's really, it's just a matter of exercising normal precautions, um, you know, trying to keep your distance where you can, wearing a mask and practicing good hygiene and being aware of your surroundings where you can, like on an airplane. And, uh, you know, we were able to, able to all stick together, uh, both politically and medically, as you say. Yeah, well, huge, huge accomplishment. And the country thanks you for, for all of that. You know, one thing I wanted to get into with you, Senator, is, Unlike an awful lot of uh, politicians, you actually have an interesting life. Um, <laughs> and and uh, one thing that I didn't know, and I was looking back to sort of your entryway into the public forum, and what I came across was a letter that you had wrote to the New York Times after they published classified information dealing with terrorist financing. And at the time, you were on the front lines. And they decided to ignore it, but there were some conservative blogs that picked it up and uh, brought it to light. And I, it seemed to me like that was sort of your entryway into the, into the public. Yeah, yeah, maybe you can say that, Josh. So yeah, it goes back to the summer of 2006. So really, the backstory goes back to December of 2005. Um, I had been uh, in Ranger School for about six weeks at that point, totally cut off from the outside world 
and we had one weekend um, where we got to kind of decompress and read the news and sleep in so we wouldn't be a danger to ourselves or others on the road as we drove home for the Christmas holiday. And the first news story I read that December of 2005 was the New York Times disclosing the highly classified, highly successful terrorist surveillance program. And I was just appalled at that. And you fast forward six months later, when I was in Iraq in 2006, New York Times did it again. They disclosed uh, something uh, known as the uh, SWIFT program, an international finance consortium that helps settle payments and transactions across uh, international borders and how we were using the SWIFT program to help track terrorist financing. And it, and by the New York Times own reporting, it was fully briefed to the relevant intelligence committees in Congress. They supported it. Our allies in Western Europe supported it, which in those days was pretty uncommon in anything related to the war on terrorism. That the New York Times decided that it was the arbiter of what should and should not be public about our classified intelligence program. So I found myself uh, in our big base in Iraq uh, for about 36 hours. Uh, that period of time, we were doing 96 hour long, long range patrols out of a small little patrol base uh, near the river. And we, we come back to the big base, get a chance to you know, take a hot shower and some hot food, you know, wash your clothes before you head back out. And I, uh, I read that story and I fired off what I guess you could say was an intemperate email <laughs> suggesting that uh, the people responsible for publishing this information uh, should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And then I left for another 96 hours where I was totally cut off from communication. Let's just say when I got back, it had gone off like something of a bomb on the internet. <laughs> I had a young private come running up to my Humvee and said, sir, you got to get inside the commander. He wants to see you right now. Oh, you're thinking of so like, did you, he said, he said, said, did you write a, an op-ed in the New York times? I said, no, sir. I wrote a, I wrote a letter to the editor, which I, I knew I was, you know, within my rights to do, you know, in your one hour of military law training as an infantry lieutenant, you get told about what you can and can't do in terms of public, political, civic participation. So I had to go up to the uh, battalion headquarters to meet the battalion commander. And I was very worried at this point that uh, you know, I might actually lose my platoon just you know, a month or two after having it and after having waited all those years to get to where I was. Uh, fortunately, he was up in the green zone that night. So I had the long sleepless night, uh, dozed off finally, woke up, had an email in my uh, army inbox from a colonel at the Pentagon. And all it said was, uh, hey LT, I thought you might like to see the message below. And he had forwarded a message from uh, Pete Schoomaker, who at the time was the chief of staff of the Army, the senior general in the Army. And the distribution list was something like all Army generals and colonels. And General Schoomaker had, had linked to my letter and said, uh, these are wise words about operational and information security from one of our brave lieutenants on the front line. Disseminate out to the lowest level. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and you're, you're just like that. You're off the hook. So I saw my battalion commander later that day and he kind of said, come over here. And uh, he said, Tom, uh, I saw your letter. Uh, he said, did you see the, uh, the chief's note about it? And I said, I did, sir. And he said, you know, yesterday I was supposed to chew your ass out, right? And I said, yes, sir, I, uh, I heard that. He said, you know, today I'm supposed to punch you on the shoulder and tell you, attaboy, go get him, right? <laughs> and I said, uh, I wasn't sure, but I was hoping it'd be something like that, sir. And so I'll tell you what, Learn, this is your lesson learned from this, Tom. Uh, didn't do anything wrong. It's, I would never uh, myself or allow one of my other commanders to do anything to suppress the rights of my soldiers. But maybe in the future when you exercise your rights, you should tell your chain of command that you're going to do so. <laughs> Don't worry, sir. I will not be exercising my rights anymore. You know, it was, it, one, funny, one funny side note on that is, um, I, you know, this all happened again while I was 
you know, out on that 96 hour patrol is a lot on the left, uh, probably some left wing commentator still with us and trolling uh, on the internet today, uh, said that I was a fiction, I was made up. Um, apparently, I didn't know this until the time, Tom Cotton is a minor character in The Lord of the Rings. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they said they took this, this name of a, of a character from Lord of the Rings and some guy who you know was a lawyer who gave it all up to go be a infantry officer and join the uh, fight in Iraq. This is all just part of the Bush war machine propaganda effort. Incredible. So you had a lot of uh, a lot of classmates and friends that were writing. In fact, one of them, Peter Berkowitz, had been a professor of mine in college. He's now the director of policy planning at the State Department. Uh, so they were all writing in to assure everyone that I, in fact, existed. Um, so uh, wow, I didn't, well, expect, I didn't expect to go to Iraq and have an existential crisis. I mean, just unbelievable. You know, I'm glad you clarified the uh, Lord of the Rings characters. I'm I'm positive that there's nobody that's listening to Ruthless that was familiar with that uh, Tom <laughs> character anyway. So I wasn't but, either. I appreciate that. That is an amazing story. Um, but but continuing in the interesting life of Tom Cotton, I think we've all read about your birthday cakes. That you, do, you, do you still do that? Not as much. My wife uh, makes a lot more desserts for our boys now, so we've moved on to uh, pound cakes and pumpkin pie. Although I got to tell you, when you see it, when you see a, a nice you know fresh sheet cake. Uh, at Walmart or Kroger or something. It's it's hard to resist because that's, you know, my wife and I actually both love that birthday cakes. And the first time, you know, maybe a, two or three weeks into dating, we actually, we're going to the grocery store because we're going to cook dinner together. And uh, we were in the bakery, like picking up, you know, bread or something. And, and I saw a birthday cake. And I, I thought I would reveal this about myself, see how she responded. I said, you know, sometimes, Anna, I just buy a cake like that on no particular day just to eat it for dessert. And she looked at me with these wide eyes and she said, are you serious? I said, yeah. And she said, I do that too. Oh my, a match <laughs> made in heaven. <laughs> For those of you who don't, don't know, Senator Cotton had made it a, a tradition in his life to at least once a week buy a sheet cake. You know, when you go into the grocery store and they have all of the leftover cakes that are sitting there, and you wonder like, did nobody order them? They just make these things up. Well, the consumer for that, and which we all wondered who that might be, it's Tom Cotton and his wife, evidently. <laughs> who, I mean, but who wouldn't? I mean, who doesn't like birthday cake? Like, when you have birthday cake at the office, back when people would go to the office, who didn't take a break come to the break room? So why wouldn't you just buy it? I don't understand. It's a very... Forget, my, my wife, her pound cakes and her pumpkin pies are really extraordinary, even better than sheet cake from Walmart. Well, you've, you've upped your dessert game, no question. One thing I know that both you and your wife are super into is Christmas. <laughs> uh, and I don't mean just like sort of, you observe Christmas because, you know, Christians observe Christmas. I mean, you're really into Christmas. I mean, you might be, you might be the world's foremost expert on the Christmas rollout. Oh yeah. Um, I know it's still just late October and, you know, according to the ways of our fathers, we would wait until Black Friday to start to decorate and celebrate for Christmas. But seriously, the, with the threats posed today in the war on Christmas, I don't think we can let our enemies get the jump on us. We have to move preemptively to start decorating and celebrating now if we want to win the war on Christmas. Well, it's a war that's been waged for quite some time, <laughs> as you know. And, and in this particular case, uh, you on the front lines of it, I'm hoping that maybe you can give listeners just a little bit of etiquette when it comes to like, when do we start listening to Christmas carols? When do we start, <laughs> you know, when's the tree go up? What, what, well, you know, but it's, it seems like there's holiday creep everywhere. I think this year, like Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks were rolling out pumpkin spice drinks like in mid-August. God bless. Um, 
Got yeah, you know, here we are, at, like I guess, like I said, the last week of October, if you've been to Walmart lately, you know they already have trees up and decorations uh, alongside their Halloween costumes. And of course, uh, Countdown to Christmas on, on Hallmark Channel has already begun. Now, my wife, my wife draws a firm line. Um, she, in between, you know, her work um, and being a great mom, she's also does, as you might imagine, most of the tasteful decorating in the house. And she's a traditionalist. Halloween until October 31st. And on November 1, it all comes down, and the fall theme, Thanksgiving, comes up. But on Thanksgiving night, once the boys are asleep, all that comes down, and the Christmas trees and the decorations start going up. Do, do you sneak in a little bit of the Hallmark Channel early in November? Do you give it just a little preview? Um, on occasion, I do, yeah. You know, my, my wife says that uh, you can only watch it for about seven minutes uh, before you've seen everything because they get you can only go like three seconds without you know a shot of Christmas decorations or it's you know your your fellow podcaster who I'm sure you're about to overtake and reach despite his vast reach Tony Kornheiser calls uh, the Hallmark countdown to Christmas Christmas flavored Novocaine for the mind <laughs> so, you know if you want to turn off the shout fests on uh, on cable news uh, you can always just flip over to Hallmark which I would point out by the way has like several several times the viewership of old repeat Christmas movies that CNN's original program has at any given time. <laughs> well, it's look at the ratings. Hall, Hallmark Christmas totally destroys almost every other channel in ratings. I mean, for good reason. It's just quality content, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a big city guy who's down on his luck, meets a gal in a small town, and, you know, they get together, and boy, oh boy, there's your Hallmark Christmas. They, set, they save the bakery. They save the bed and breakfast. They save the traditional... Christmas parade after overcoming the smallest, most easily surmountable obstacle to their relationship ever met by any two people. <laughs> it is a match made in heaven. I mean, first of all, that cookie cutter gets plowed through. I mean, every single movie, basically the same thing, but they're all gold in my mind. I, I remember the Wall Street Journal had a story, it's written several stories about the phenomenon, because from a marketing standpoint, Countdown to Christmas really is a phenomenon uh, that Hallmark has created. But uh, it had like their director of content a few years ago uh, writing about how many people send in uh, uh, screenplays for Countdown to Christmas movies. And that every year they end up, you know, some of them, I mean, they do 40 of these movies a year, like you know, filming year round. Um, so every, every year, uh, at least some of them you know, got their genesis from a viewer screenplay. But he said also every year, uh, someone sends in a screenplay that is along the following lines. Um, it was, you know, in the snowiest town in America, it was a Christmas without snow. And his response to that was, nope, not on the Hallmark Channel. There is no Christmas without snow here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, look, I mean, we're all hoping for the best next Tuesday. Uh, if for some horrible reason, Republicans come up short and Democrats get their hands on power, we're counting on you for the defense of Christmas. And we're looking at the Defense of Christmas Act, which I believe uh, the minions uh, here will help you write <laughs> and make sure that we've covered all of our bases. That sound like a deal? As long as we can keep saying Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be line one. <laughs> all right. So, Senator, we've got three questions that we're asking absolutely everybody. And uh, it starts with your last meal on earth. What, was, what would that be? Oh, I'm I'm pretty meat and potatoes guy on this though, so uh, I'd probably go just a a good steak, maybe a good baked potato, um, maybe of course topped off with some birthday cake. Oh yeah, absolutely <laughs> for dessert. 
<laughs> uh, second question, if you weren't in politics, what would you be? I would still be in the Army. Um, you know, it, was a, it was a tough choice for me to leave the Army when I did. I started, uh, as I mentioned earlier, later in life. Uh, I don't think I got in the Army until I was 27, almost 28. So after spending almost five years in the Army, I was 33 um, and close to 33. And uh, you know, I just decided if I, if I wanted to spend 20, if I wanted to spend, go take my next step, which would have been a, anywhere from a two to five year commitment, I, I probably would have wanted to commit to 20 years at that age. I wasn't ready to quite do that. Um, but you know, if I had joined as a younger man, if I had joined, you know, straight out of high school, straight out of college, as people typically do, um, I might have made a career out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, number three, what motivates Tom Cotton more? The thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? The thrill of victory, uh, because we had a lot of great thrills. Uh, in recent years. But of course, the agony of defeat is something to be avoided at all possible costs. Uh, you know, if, it, if anybody watched the 10 uh, part Michael Jordan documentary uh, that ESPN ran back in the spring at the height of the pandemics and the lockdowns, uh, I thought it captured very well uh, just how bad he hated to lose and how far he would go to work and to train uh, to avoid losing. Um, so, although the thrill of victory is great, you always want to avoid the agony of defeat. Absolutely. No, that's, that's a great Michael Jordan embodied the hatred of defeat. <laughs> no question about it. Well, we're all going to hate defeat uh, and we're all going to work towards victory next Tuesday. Senator Cotton, uh, nobody, and I mean this sincerely, nobody does more for his colleagues or the Republican Party traveling the country, campaigning for folks, trying to make sure that we secure our majority and reelect President Trump than you do. So on behalf of all of our ruthless listeners, I just want to thank you for everything. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it. It's good to be on with you. You bet. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.